Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Not long ago, the website TravelChannel.com published an article that titled the Top 10 Vacation Spots, Plan Your Ultimate Vacation. The purpose of the article was simple. It was to list the top 10 places that people like to go in the world, where everyone wants to go basically before they die. Sort of a bucket list of locations. I don't have time to list them all for you. There was about 10, but here's just a few. Paris, France topped the list. Paris is one of those rare places, I'm told by the Travel Channel, because I've never been there, um, that uh, you can spend weeks sightseeing there and barely scratch the surface of all that the city has to offer. Uh, The Travel Channel says this historic city offers museums galore, stellar shopping, and busy cafes, perfect for people watching. Uh, New York was the next uh, uh, popular location to visit before you die on the list. Uh, The city that never sleeps has eye-catching architecture, Broadway plays, Central Park, and of course Times Square. Next on the list was London, England. Of course, no travel bucket list would leave out London with all of its rich history. The the cosmopolitan city offers a unique blend of historic landmarks and a hip modern culture. Tower Bridge, Big Ben, Abbey Road, and the London Eye are just a few of the popular attractions in this iconic city. Did I sound like a travel agent there? Yeah, I did a lot of copying and pasting uh, for that part there, so... uh, um, Seriously, though, there is another place where everyone wants to go after they die. The number one destination at the top of everyone's list on the day they die is heaven. Heaven's popularity can be seen in the number of books and songs, TV shows and movies that have been made about it. It can also be seen in the polls that have sought to find out what Americans believe about the afterlife. Uh, For example, a recent LifeWay research poll found that 54% of Americans believe those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation will go to heaven. 52% of Americans believe they can contribute some part to their salvation. And then 40% of Americans believe in hell as a place of judgment where God sends people who do not personally trust in Christ. Thankfully, Jesus taught a lot about heaven and hell, and he is a trustworthy source for us to consult on the subject. We're resuming our journey through the parables of Jesus today in this series called Once Upon a Time. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13 and take out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder so that you can follow along. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can loan one to you so that you can follow along with us. 
Here's our big idea for today. I like to call it the sermon in a sentence. If I could put it in a, in a Twitter post and boil it down into one short, succinct statement. And my best attempt to do that is this. The invitation to heaven is open, but entrance into heaven is exclusive. The invitation to heaven is open, but the entrance into heaven is exclusive. We've been learning throughout this series that a parable is an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. The Lord loved to use stories to take black and white truth and to sort of transform them into high-definition color. Some of these truths, I think you will agree with me, have been difficult to hear. Um, You probably have been surprised, just as I have, as we've worked our way through the parables in Luke to find there are quite a few bold difficult truths that Jesus packed into his stories. Uh, In the parable, the narrow door is no exception. It is another tough text, as I would call it, that we're going to be looking at today. A tough text is one that's rarely taught on, corrects misconceptions we may have about the Lord, and probably will make us feel uncomfortable. But despite this, tough texts are important because they also correct bad theology. They correct bad thinking about the Lord that's not true so that we can think accurately about him. In today's parable, Jesus acknowledges that heaven is a place where many want to go, but few will be able to enter. He also refutes some of the myths people have about heaven and hell. And if I was to boil down succinctly why Jesus told this parable we're going to look at, I think he told it so that we would not believe the lies that are out there about heaven and not put people there he would not let in. Follow along with me, if you would, as we look at Luke chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 22 to 24. So he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Here's the first truth on your outline that Jesus is telling us in this story, and that is this. The house of heaven is only open to a limited number of people. The house of heaven is only open to a limited number of people. The person that's mentioned in verse 23 Ask a legitimate, common question. How many people are going to get to go to heaven? How many are going to be there? It's a question that many still ask today. The questioner may have hoped that Jesus would have loosened his requirements for discipleship and entrance into heaven, but you will soon see he doesn't. He upholds his standards 
And just as he's always done, the Lord is intentional in his choice of an illustration. Uh, Notice he describes heaven like a house. A house has defined boundaries, like inside versus outside. It has limited space, so there isn't room for everybody. And it usually has one main entrance, a front door, instead of several ways to get there. And the homeowner is the one who decides who's welcome and who's not. Notice then in verse 24, Jesus says, Strive. Strive to enter. Luke's choice of word, excuse me, his choice of word, strive, it comes actually from the Greek word agonizomai. It's a fascinating Greek word. It, It means to struggle in an athletic contest or in combat. You see, in verse 24, when Jesus says strive to enter through the narrow door, it's yet another reminder that although Jesus has high expectations, his expectations are still reasonable and attainable. He doesn't say the door is closed. He just says it's narrow. It's worth noting that Paul referred to the Christian life as both an Olympic race and a battle in his letters. Now, just a point of clarification, though, Jesus isn't saying we should try to earn our salvation by striving and working hard and I'm just going to do the best I can and I'm going to make all the right choices and keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. He's not saying that at all. He said, instead, he's saying surrendering our lives to follow him through repentance and faith will lead to a harder life, but it will be worth the reward. And the reward is eternal life. It it will be like a battle. It's hard, but after you win the battle, you're glad you fought it. It will be like an Olympic race. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to push yourself. But when you got the medal put around your neck, you'll be glad you ran the race the way you did. Notice in verse 24 also another key word I have underlined in my Bible, besides strive, I underlined many, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. What what does Jesus mean by this? I think he means that many will want to enter heaven because of its benefits, but will be unable to because they will want to enter on their own terms. They they may want heaven plus being able to earn their salvation too, like the statistics I shared a few minutes ago. Or they may want heaven plus I want to hold on to my sin because I actually like my sin too. I don't want to have to let go of that, but I definitely want to be in heaven. I don't want to pay for my sin in hell. Or they, they may want heaven plus being liked by all people. Or heaven plus going through maybe another door. 
However, Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This isn't the first time Jesus used this kind of exclusive language about his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, which I I think I've got the reference down on your outline for you, uh, I'll show it to you on the keynote screen behind me. Jesus said this, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. During a message he preached on this very passage, Luke 13, uh, one of my favorite, favorite authors and theologians, J.C. Ryle, was addressing an audience uh, who believed most citizens will end up in heaven, while only the worst of the worst criminals go to hell. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century British theologian and Anglican bishop and uh, powerful preacher, penetrating, incisive writer. And so after challenging his listeners to read Luke 13, verses 22 to 30, like we are today, Ryle challenged them, read it objectively. Read it with an open mind, with no bias. Just look at what Jesus is saying. And after he challenged his audience to do that, he summarizes Jesus' words like this. The sum of the whole matter is this. The Bible and the men of the world speak very differently about the number of the saved. According to the Bible, few will be saved. According to the men of the world, many. According to the men of the world, few are going to hell. But according to the Bible, few are going to heaven. According to the men of the world, few will be seeking admission into heaven when it's too late. But according to the Bible, many will have waited too long and will cry in vain, Lord, Lord, open to us. Some of you have a difficult question to answer today as you listen to me or if you're listening online. And the question, I think, is this. Are you going to believe what the world says about heaven and hell? Or are you going to believe the author of salvation who has the authority to cast souls into hell? Who who are you going to listen to? I've been praying all week you would choose wisely, and I'm going to do everything I can to persuade you in the remainder of our time together. Obviously, I'm biased. I think we should listen to Jesus. And I'm praying, and I'm going to do my best to help you choose rightly. Now, uh, despite the toughness of this text, there is some encouragement here. I think instead of criticizing the Lord for not letting everybody into heaven, we should be thankful he's willing to let anybody into heaven. You see, because if you understand your own lostness and sinfulness and how wretched your soul is and how it rebelled against God, a holy God, 
you should be thankful that he would even consider letting you in to his heaven. And so his offer of salvation to rebellious sinners through the door of his son, Jesus Christ, reveals just how loving, gracious, and merciful he is. The invitation to heaven is open, but entrance into heaven is exclusive. Let's continue to look at the story here. Verse 25, Jesus says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Here's number two on your outline. The house of heaven is only open for a limited period of time. The house of heaven is only open for a limited period of time. Another phrase that I have underlined in my Bible that you might want to underline in yours or highlight is the master of the house. This is an important detail that we must not miss. You see, just as it is at your house, Jesus is the one who gets to decide when the door to his house is open and when it will be closed. Why? Because it's his house. Just like you would not want me telling you when you're supposed to have your house open and welcoming company, we should not be telling Jesus who he's supposed to let in because it's not our house. Some sinners are guilty of doing this very thing that they would never allow in their own home. They try to change the rules at Jesus' house, but he will have nothing of it. Notice in verse 25 also, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. Just like a ship that has set sail, a train that has left the station, or a plane that has left the terminal, the door of salvation will close, and those who procrastinated will be left on the outside looking in. If you have not yet made the decision to personally surrender your life to Jesus Christ, I would urge you to not delay that any longer, because one of two things is going to happen that you cannot predict. Either one, you're going to die and stand before the Lord, and it'll be too late. Or he's going to return to bring judgment on the world, on the earth. Either one of those events is the door of salvation shutting. And you can't predict when they're going to happen. In either case, whether you die or whether Jesus comes back tomorrow to judge the earth, you will have to stand before the Father in heaven and answer the question, what did you do with my son? Did you accept him or reject him? Now, there is encouragement in these verses for believers. We can 
thank the Lord for saving us before he shut the door. There's also hope for unbelievers here, too. And that is the fact that the door is still open. The door to salvation is still open. You, Jesus, Jesus didn't compare himself to a raging river that's hard to cross and where the, where the, the weight of the water could blow you away. Or a, he didn't compare himself to a dark forest that you would have to navigate and figure out how to get through it in order to be saved. Or he didn't compare himself to a barren desert that you would have to walk and trudge through miles and miles of sand and trying to survive while you're dying of thirst. No, he compares himself to a narrow door. And all you have to do is walk through it. And yet, ironically, something as simple as walking through a narrow door is too hard for some people to do. The narrow door may be the only way in, but it's still an open door. And I find that encouraging. The invitation to heaven is open, but entrance into heaven is exclusive. Let's look back at the text again, verse 26. Uh, Jesus says, then you, he's talking to his audience that's listening to him. Then, then you, here's what you all are going to do after I shut the door of salvation. You're going to begin to say to me, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he, the master, will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Here's number three on your outline. The house of heaven is closed to the self-deceived. The house of heaven is closed to the self-deceived. Here in verses 26 to 28, Jesus begins to name some of the justifications people will give as to why they should be allowed into heaven. His heaven, by the way. Not only does the Lord predict their reasoning, but he also captures their surprise when they aren't let in. Notice that those who got shut out, they expected to get into heaven. And they may have even felt they deserved to get into heaven, and then they're shocked that they didn't. This is why I'm calling them self-deceived. They think they have acquired salvation from their sins and eternal life, but they have not. What a scary thought. To live your life thinking that you're okay with the Lord, that your eternity is secure, only to find out it's not. These verses are similar to something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, also in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. 
There, in that teaching context, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, dear loved ones, the day of judgment will be one of shock and awe as the Lord separates those who professed to have faith in Christ from those who actually possessed Christ. Big difference. One group knows about Jesus. The other group knows Jesus. And let's make sure this is clear. Jesus will not be misled. He will not make any mistakes. He will not change his mind. He will never have to go, oops, sorry, you were supposed to go over here. He knows exactly who his children are. It will be crystal clear to Jesus who his followers are and who his fans are. In order to help us avoid being shut out of heaven, the Lord actually gives us a description here in the text of those who will be. How helpful. We've seen in other passages, in other parables, excuse me, that we've studied in this series, the Lord has told us who will be saved. Well, now he's telling us who will not be saved. And this would be letters A, B, C, and D in your outline. The self-deceived, first of all, letter A, they will prefer a convenient association over an intimate connection. They will prefer a convenient association over an intimate connection. Notice in verse 26 how the self-deceived people that got shut out of the house of heaven, they, they say, hey, hey, Jesus, we ate and we drank in your presence. Remember, we hung out together. Man, you were my house. Remember we had that big feast and everything? We talked politics and money and parenting and this might be a reference to some of the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus spent time with that are actually referenced in Luke 15 verse 1 but unfortunately instead of beginning a relationship with him through repentance and faith these folks thought they could have the benefits of the relationship without making a commitment to him They, they, were like, they were like part of that crowd that follows a superstar celebrity around that just wants to be around the celebrities so they can take selfies with the celebrity in the background, you know? And Yeah, yeah, me and, me and LeBron, we're friends. Yeah, me and Brad Pitt, we hang out all the time together. When really you just follow him around with your camera taking selfies. He doesn't know you very well or know who you are. But, but people do that. 
There are people who want to elevate themselves by association with someone more valuable or important or influential than them. I'm sure the President of the United States has to deal with that all the time, regardless of who's in that office. People who just want to get a picture with him or say they know him when they really don't. The same was true in Jesus' day. Next, uh, he... The second uh, characteristic of the self-deceived is they, letter B, they listen to Jesus' teaching, but they don't apply it. They, They listen to it. They hear it, but they don't apply it. They, they, they say to the master of the house, you taught in our streets. We, you came right on down, man, through my neighborhood. You were teaching, and we listened to you. Remember, 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 Jesus, we heard your sermon. In fact, we even told you it was a good message. And, and we, we told you we were going to tell our friends about it. We were going to tell them they should listen to it online and everything. And, and remember, you're the first preacher, Jesus, that actually kept our attention for more than a few minutes. And, and, and we didn't throw rocks at you like those other Pharisees did. And, and we didn't try to kill you. See, we're better than them. We, we actually paid attention. What Jesus is saying here is this. You see, one, one litmus test that can indicate whether a person is self-deceived is how they respond when their sin is confronted with God's word. That, that is a crucial test or intersecting point in their life that will prove whether they really believe what they say they believe. Are you a Christ follower? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you believe the Bible is God's word? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, God's word says that what you just did was sin. Do you believe that? Oh, how dare you say that to me? Who do you think you are? Oh, wait a minute. I thought, but I thought you said you're a Christ follower. I am. I thought you believed God's word is, is here in the Bible, and God's word says that what you just did was wrong, and you, you need to repent and ask forgiveness for it. Who do you think you are? See, those who actually love the Lord do more than just listen to his teaching in the streets. They they feel conviction when confronted with God's word because they actually have the indwelling Holy Spirit within them. They receive correction. They grieve over their sin and they change their behavior. But on the other hand, those who just want to hear it but don't apply it, well, they... The self-deceived tend to become defensive. They attack the messenger and storm off, feeling no conviction at all. Or they leave the church and they say, I'm going to go to another church that will just leave me alone. And I'm going to tell that church how horrible your church is. In a similar passage, In the similar passage from Matthew 7 that you saw me reference earlier, Jesus gives two more additional qualities of the self-deceived. Here's letter C. Again, this comes from Matthew 7, 22. Uh, They proclaim false doctrine in his name. They proclaim false doctrine in his name. Uh, You might remember when I had that up on the screen a few minutes ago, uh, that group was pleading with Jesus, "Did, did we not prophesy in your name? 
You've heard me say before that not every church that hangs a shingle out in Jesus' name or uh, every preacher with a Bible in his hand is a legitimate minister of the gospel. There are imposters out there deployed by the adversary to lead people astray. False teachers who teach false doctrine and make false converts. It was, it's been a problem ever since the beginning of the early church. And those of you that have been here at Vanguard for a while, as I've been working through some of the New Testament letters, false teachers and false doctrine is in almost every letter that Paul wrote. Because the adversary has been working since the beginning of the church to use imposters to lead people astray. So, so in Matthew 7.22, Jesus shows, I know who the false teachers are. And even though they stood up, held a Bible, taught a false gospel, I'm going to say, get away from me, I never knew you. Next, some of these false teachers even, letter D, performed miracles in his name. Miracles. They casted out demons and did mighty works. There's an example of this in the book of Acts. It's a fascinating story. You can read it later. It's in Acts 19, if you want to jot the reference down. Acts 19, verses 11 to 16. The seven sons of Sceva, or Skeva, they were sons of a, a Jewish rabbi. They were going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They were not believers. And eventually what happened was one of the demons said, you're not Jesus. And the demon beat up the seven sons and pounded on them. Now, obviously, such powers would increase the credibility in the eyes of gullible believers, which is why Satan gives some false believers or teachers supernatural power. He will do that. Because gullible believers will hear the message and go, oh, I don't know if I believe you. Oh, look, he must be legit. He did a miracle. All the while not listening to the content of the message and being deceived. So letters C and D are not only reminders that the Lord isn't fooled by such tricksters, but also that we need to know God's word so we aren't fooled either. Now, back to Luke 13 and verse 28. Jesus says, Those who are put outside the house of heaven, the door is shut, they will end up in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a phrase that's used in a couple places in the, in the Gospels to describe hell. Contrary to what some unbelievers have foolishly said, hell is not a place of perpetual partying, but rather a place of perpetual suffering and torment forever. Again, J.C. Ryle provides vivid clarity on this soon coming reality when he wrote this, and I don't have this on the screen behind me, but just listen closely. Thousands, 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 when they die, will wake up in another world and be convinced about the truths 
which they refuse to believe on earth. Hell itself is nothing but truth known too late. End quote. Jesus continues. He references some of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith because there were Jews in his audience. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out, this is Jesus saying, if I would paraphrase it, uh, do you remember all those messengers that God sent to you whom you did not listen to? Do, do you remember when you mocked all the prophets of God and you cast them out of town? Well, the day is coming when you will be cast out. You will be on the outside looking in. It's what Jesus is telling his audience. You'll be in hell looking up at heaven where Abraham and Jacob and Isaac are and all the prophets wishing you were where they are. As I read this text several times this week, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder as I read verse 28 how many might be here listening to my voice today who have arrogantly dismissed one messenger of God after another messenger of God or one message from God after another message from God without realizing the cost of such pride will be your very soul. I can't help but wonder whether there might be some of you whom God has been trying to get to and you keep on brushing him off and procrastinating. I got time, I got time. Leave me alone, leave me alone. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I got it under control. And all the while, you are missing out on opportunities before the door shuts. Now, I find it encouraging Again, despite this being a tough text, I think there's some encouragement in here. I, th I find it encouraging that we worship a God who cannot be deceived, overpowered, or persuaded. I mean, when you think about all the great things that will be in heaven, including Jesus, he's the main thing. Uninterrupted fellowship with him is what I'm most looking forward to and being free from my own sin nature, but... But on top of all the other things that are going to be wonderful about heaven, isn't it encouraging that no one in heaven is going to be able to cry, no fair, how'd he get in here? Or, or no one in heaven is going to be able to pull you aside if, if you're saved and know Jesus and say, psst, I'm not supposed to be here. I snuck in through the other door. There's nobody getting by Jesus. There's nobody sneaking in. Or, hey, I slipped Jesus a little change. Changed his mind. Said I'd make a big donation to the church. I got in. There's nobody is going to be able to buy Jesus off or persuade him or trick him. I find that encouraging. Nobody's going to beat Jesus up and say, I'm coming in anyway. Not going to happen. 
Well, let's look at the final two verses, uh, verses 29 to 30. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Here's the last point in your outline, number four. The invitation to the house of heaven is universal. The, the invitation to the house of heaven is universal. Now, there's a little, there, there's something Jesus is up to here that I, I want to make sure to explain to you when he says this. You see, in these last two verses, it's, it's probably, most likely, that Jesus is calling out some of his proud Jewish listeners. You see, many of the Jews and the Pharisees in Jesus' day were, they had become prejudiced as a result of their exclusive relationship they had with God. The people of Israel were God's special chosen people, and he, he said that many times in the Old Testament. I have chosen you to be my special people. I'm going to bless you, protect you, use you, unlike any other nation in the world. I am not using any other nation, in fact. But the results of that exclusive special relationship caused some of the Jews to become proud and prejudiced towards the rest of the world. They, they began to think the rest of the world doesn't deserve God. We do, because we're special. And so here's what Jesus was saying, <laughs> like only Jesus could say. He's now saying, in essence, their relationship would no longer be exclusive. Instead, the rest of the world is now going to be invited into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord's desire to call people from every tribe and tongue and nation from all four points of the compass reveals not only his love for the whole world, but also how far he's willing to go to save whosoever might come. So he's telling the Jews and his audience, I'm opening this thing up. I'm going to invite everybody, anybody who will come, anybody who will believe in me and repent of their sin and follow me, they can have a relationship with me too. And some of the Jews didn't like that. They wanted God to themselves. So, so I would paraphrase what Jesus is saying here like this. Even though you were told by the prophets I was coming, you still rejected me. Instead, people from all over the world, all the other people who really didn't know I was coming, they didn't hear all the prophecies. They're going to take your place in my house. Mic drop. Boom. Another look at the severe side of Jesus. You're going to reject me? You heard about me for hundreds of years through, through the prophets? Okay. I'm going to take these folks in instead because they believe in me. We see this throughout the Gospels where Jesus occasionally would make comments saying, oh, if I'd only seen such faith in the nation of Israel. And he, he would say it like, for example, uh, I think it's in, in the Gospel of Matthew when he encounters the Roman centurion. He calls out the Roman centurion and 
puts a spotlight on the Roman centurion's faith. And the reason he does it is like, this Roman soldier even believes in me. And you Jews still don't. In other words, he's not supposed to be believing in me this easily. Well, what do we do now that we've heard this parable? I, one of the many reasons I share applications at the end of my messages is because I don't want us to be self-deceived here. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. And then Paul says in Romans 12 too, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this means, among other things, that we need to respond to the teaching of God's word by changing our thinking so that it matches his. And that includes our thinking about heaven and hell and who's saved and who's not. So here's number one, the first application that comes to mind. And the, and the Holy Spirit might give you others, more personal applications for you, but here's, here's one of two. Take care of business with the Lord immediately. Take care of business with the Lord immediately. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, I want to urge you to not procrastinate dealing with where you will spend eternity. No one promised you tomorrow. And the scriptures make it clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The door is open. Jesus is extending the invitation to those who would want to surrender their lives to him, exchange their sinful, imperfect life for his sinless, perfect life. What a wonderful deal. He demonstrated his love for you by sending uh, the Father did by sending Christ to die on the cross for your sins and then resurrecting him again three days later so that you too could conquer death someday. The scriptures also teach that anyone who surrenders their life to him can spend eternity with him instead of eternity in hell, paying the consequences for your sin. Eternity with him means forgiveness, peace, and eternal life by grace through faith in Christ's atoning work. Now, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you've been procrastinating doing something the Lord's been prompting you to do, I would urge you, wait no longer. There is a sweet freedom and a settled happiness that comes from being able to stand before the Lord with few, if any, regrets. So take care of your business with the Lord immediately. Because believers have not been promised tomorrow either. Number two. Don't change Jesus' house rules. Don't change Jesus' house rules. I, I, I need to say something here that might be difficult for some of you to hear, just as difficult as it is for me to say it. So I'm, I'm treading nervously here on eggshells. Uh, but there is a common problem 
for believers that this parable confronts that I feel compelled to uncover and just sort of bring to the surface and say, hey, we gotta talk about this. And so, so I wanna say this as gently and lovingly as I can. And I've rewritten and rewritten this part of my manuscript a few times uh, in the last few hours to try and get it right. Um, so I hope this comes across the right way. When I say don't change Jesus' house rules, here, here's what I mean. Please do not allow your affections for a friend or family member to cause you to lower the bar of the gospel for them. Jesus has not granted that authority to us. There, there are at least two truths that Jesus has repeated in the Luke parables that I'm seeing that keep coming up over the last few weeks. Uh, the first is that salvation comes only through repentance and faith in him alone. And the second truth that's being repeated is the proof that someone has been saved from their sin is found in the fruit that they bear. Just look at the parable of the sower or the parable of the barren fig tree messages that I preached recently. In, in other words, if the faith of your friend or family member or loved one hasn't changed them, then it hasn't saved them. It doesn't doesn't matter how nice they are, how popular they are, how generous they are, how much they did for the family, how much fun you had, what morals they had, or how much an impact they had on your life. The terms Jesus has laid down for salvation are clear. He he makes no exceptions, and his terms are not negotiable. Repent of your sin and trust in him alone for salvation and follow him. This is important because saying that someone is going to heaven who has shown no fruits of repentance is more offensive to God than telling someone to go to hell is offensive to man. But we don't want to offend man by saying that to them, then why are we not afraid of offending God by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, she, he, he's a believer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he go to church? No, 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 he says he believes, though. Does he walking with the Lord? No, he's struggling for the last 35 years. You see, when we change the gospel because we want to either make ourselves feel better or the loved one feel better, we commit heresy is what we're doing. Because you're changing the gospel that Jesus preached. And it offends the king who has invited us to be a part of his kingdom. When we try to change his entrance requirements, 
because we want to bring our loved ones with us. In reality, people who try to do this are just deceiving themselves because we, we can't change the king's house rules. He's not going to let us do it. So, I just would urge you, instead of trying to change the gospel to fit our loved ones, we need to pray our loved ones would change by receiving the true gospel. That's what we need to do. And if they don't, that's between them and the Lord. And we can't control that. We can't make them get saved, and we can't make God save them or make God change his standards for salvation. All we can do is pray and present the truth. Clear, lovingly, this is what God's word says. This is what Jesus says. Well, before John Newton was an influential gospel preacher in the 18th century Great Britain, he was an angry drunk, foul-mouthed sailor who spent the first half of his life capturing natives in West Africa so he could sell them as slaves to wealthy English aristocrats. That is, until Jesus interrupted John Newton's life. One day, the Spirit of God used a fierce storm on the high seas to put the fear of God into the heart of this wicked slave trader. Afraid that his ship was going to sink, Newton began to read The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and it was a book about the gospel and about Jesus. And This caused Newton to repent of his sins and trust in Christ alone for his salvation. Well, not long after his conversion on those stormy seas, on that slave ship, the Lord called Newton into full-time gospel ministry. He quickly became known for his powerful sermons and inspiring hymns and prolific book writing. And by God's grace, Newton spent the second half of his life making up for the first by setting slaves to sin free with the bondage-breaking gospel of Jesus Christ. Shortly before his death, he passionately proclaimed the following statement in a sermon. When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders. The first will be to see many people there I did not expect to see. The second will be to miss many I did expect to see. And the third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. Heaven is the most popular destination to see in the universe. Everybody wants to go there. Have you made your travel plans yet? You see, The invitation to heaven is open, but entrance into heaven is exclusive. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, I first just want to pray for those who are listening here today, either in this room or online, who may not know where they're going to spend eternity 
And, and Lord, I know from your word and I know from my own ministry experiences in various churches that every church has unbelievers in it. And so, Lord, I just want to ask if there is anyone here today or listening online who does not have a personal, intimate, deepening, life-changing relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, would you please save them? Would you please, Lord, show them their sin, but also show them your great love and mercy and grace. Show them all that you have to offer through your Son. And I pray, Father, that you would work in their hearts by your Spirit and help them to surrender themselves at your feet. and to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Lord, there may be others that are here today who've made that decision already, but they have business to do with you. You've been poking and prodding and tugging on their heartstrings. Father, please, would you not give up until they stop procrastinating? Lord, would you, would you please, by your grace and by your spirit, help them, strengthen them, give, give them the, the faith to step out and to do what you're calling them to do. Maybe it's to repent of something and to, to, to stop a sin habit. Maybe it's to reconcile a relationship or to go apologize to someone or, or to surrender something else to you that you've been asking them to give up. Please, Lord, help them to do that. And finally, Lord, for those of us who do know Christ, would you help us to lovingly, boldly, gently, and firmly share the undiluted gospel with loved ones and friends and people that you put in our and Lord, would you help us to trust you with the results? We want to be faithful messengers, Lord, that accurately relay what you've already said. So please, Lord, would you use us to bring more into the kingdom? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.